Hello, I'm Linda van Tilburg. Welcome to our very first broadcast of Nutshell. It's a weekly wrap of some of the stories we have covered on Biz News and the interviews that we featured to help us understand what shapes our markets, business, corporates, well, basically anything that has an impact on the South African business community in the country, but also overseas. And as our focus is on the news that impacts businesses in our wonderful, well, now slightly tarnished rainbow nation, there will inevitably be a brush with politics, the environment or overseas events that dumps our rand into the doldrums or helps it to soar. I will also include some of the Good Hope stories, as news tends to zoom in on the catastrophe or the sensational story that would lead to the most clicks. And I think we forget that we live in a country that produces brilliance and people, of course, like Nelson Mandela, the comedian Trevor Noah, Mark Shuttleworth, Elon Musk, Ernie Els, and business giants that dominate overseas, such as Nuspash, Richmond, SAB Miller, and Anglo-America. In the past couple of weeks, the news has been dominated by politics, or should I say more specifically, the public protector, Busisiwe Mkwebane, who has the Reserve Bank in her scope, or should I say Public Enterprises Minister Prabhan Gordon and President Cyril Ramaphosa, who she says is protecting Gordon. Well, this week, a new book by Johan van Locherenberg on SARS and its battle with the tobacco industry has been published. It is titled Tobacco Wars. Johan, formerly from the taxman in South Africa, chronicles in the book what he calls the double-dealing world of tobacco's colorful characters and ruthless corporates. He spoke to Alec Hogg. I make the point in the book that there are no angels in the tobacco industry whatsoever. So nobody must misunderstand me on that. But I, I use the analogy of, um, you know, you get, you get the bag snatchers and the muggers, um, and then you get the bank robbers. And to effectively combat those crimes, you need to, uh, focus on the muggers, the bag snatchers and the bag rob, bank robbers. You cannot just you know, f- focus all your attention on the, the muggers and the bag snatchers and try and lock them up for jaywalking when they run across the street while the bank is getting robbed around the corner. And that is really the approach that we took in, in terms of that project that's quite well known now called Project Honey Badger. We very deliberately looked at different taxpayer types in other words, from big to small, and all the people along the value chain, not just the manufacturers, but we started at the um, in the primary sector with um, agriculture. And um, at the same time, we looked at all tax types. So we didn't only look at smuggling and illicit manufacturing, but we also looked at payroll taxes, corporate taxes, value-added tax. And so on. So it was a, the, the, the design of Honey, Honey Badger was, was a matrix and it was a fairly complex matrix. Um, and I, I used the, I used the example of a, of a waterbed. Um, you know, if you, if you squeeze on, on one corner of the waterbed, it, it pushes the, the water to the other side and it bulges up on the other end. So what you need to do when you when you take a whole of industry um, approach is you've got to put equal pressure on the entire waterbed. Otherwise, you're just shifting the problem. 
The one uh, multinational that did publicly state and confirm that they were um, undergoing a, a full-scale audit by the Revenue Service was British American Tobacco South Africa in the media in April 2014. So they, they confirmed that. And that's about as much as I can say, you know, publicly. Martin Wingate-Pierce was in court, or he had a, uh, a court case against Pravin Gordon uh, about the whole rogue unit. He was kicked out last week in a very scathing judgment against him. What does this mean for people like you who've had your names besmirched, who've, who've, uh, who've had the evaders, evo- avoiders, the, the tax cheats, if you like, uh, being able to postpone at the very least uh, their, their payments. What does that court judgment mean in those two aspects? Huh. Um, look, I think Mr. Wingate Pierce acted on very bad legal advice. That's my starting point. Once you're on a roll, it's very difficult to, to sort of climb off that horse. The second thing is the, the issue around the unit is still very much before our courts. So, I wouldn't want to sort of venture into it too much because there's been a recent finding by our public protector, which has found this unit to have been unlawfully established, which, which is being contested by everybody. What I can say, which, which I found, um, rather, um, uh, something little, a little bit positive that I saw yesterday uh, evening is a, a, press statement issued by the, the Fair Independent Tobacco Trade Association, FITA. They basically represent, I think, most of the local manufacturers in South Africa, excluding the multinationals. They, they belong to another um, grouping called the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa. Now, what's interesting in that um, uh, press release that they released yesterday, and I suppose it's, you know, as a consequence of, of the book, um, and what's contained in the book is that there is an acknowledgement, which is unreservedly so put out by them, that there were wrongs in the past and they, without reservation, apologized to the South African Revenue Service and its officials, past and former, as well as people that have been affected by the events of 2014. And they then go a little bit further and they describe it to the fact that what they call, in quotes, agents of influence who led them down the garden path. And if you read my book, you'll see exactly who they are. Um, and the common denominator between all those so-called agents of influence is that they not only served their masters that were multinational uh, tobacco manufacturers, but they were very, very close, closely intertwined with um, law enforcement and intelligence operatives. And it's not over yet. Um, it's still how, ongoing. How do you so. mean it's not over yet? What what happens now? Well, there's a there's a there's a there's a criminal matter where um, the former deputy commissioner of the Revenue Service, Ivan Pillay, uh, myself, and the, the the first manager of uh, that small investigative unit have been charged for some vague event that uh, apparently happened somewhere in 2007 which I have no knowledge of, but that's a prosecution that's been dragging on for a year now. And I've spent my life savings in 
five applications to try and get the complete docket out of them, and I still don't have access to the complete docket. So that's one matter. And the second matter relates to the recent report issued by the public protector, which is now before courts. The focus this week was also on banking staff in South Africa, with NetBank announcing the retrenchment of 1,500 workers. Alec caught up with his old friend Koki Koeman from Denker Capital, who says that the traditional banking world is being challenged by new upstarts and fintech is actually endangering jobs. Uh, the main factor is obviously, as they say, uh, digitalization. It's, it's a new buzzword, all the fintechs, but the banks are being uh, a, attacked by more nimble, smaller players, even in South Africa, Zero Bank and Time Bank and Discovery Bank. and yeah. So the banks are responding, all of them, by working on their technology side on the, and, and making sure they also can compete with the smaller, nimbler players. But But the effect of that is that as you digitalize, as they call it, uh, you need fewer branches because people and the trend globally is for banking to be done on the Internet or these days not even Internet via mobile apps. So as you as you do that, uh, your branches become less important. They get smaller and your branches that are out of the way get closed and and I think the second factor now is in South Africa where the economy has been struggling for an, a, lo- a long time and, and there's no respite in sight that you've got to start, start sharpening your pencils. And that's not only for banks, that is, that is for companies, all companies operating in South Africa where to, to generate the returns on, on capital that shareholders require, you've got to start uh, retrenching staff that, that are left behind. NetBank's got 30,500 people who work there. They yeah. are retrenching yeah. 1,500, yeah. so they'll presumably yeah. go down to 29,000. How would they yeah. compare with a similar-sized bank somewhere else in the world in the number of staff? Due to natural attrition, they lose about uh, 1,000, 1,500 staff members per year. So, And by the way, they also said that their March results that – you know, after this 1,500, they'd most probably need to lose another 3,000. So, you know, but this is ongoing, like on a three-year basis. But how do we compare? Um, South African banks, in terms of cost-to-income ratios, are actually uh, fairly good, not not top of a class, but but in the middle. Um, and it depends on if you talk developed markets or emerging markets. So, in developed markets, they tend to use fewer staff. But your people costs are a lot higher in developed markets. So we, w- we would look to be overstaffed compared to most developed market banks. If you compare to other emerging markets, those banks are still very branch based. And so, and branches are there used still to take deposits. Uh, so it all depends on, on, you know, the society in which one operates. But, but generally our banks are fairly efficient. But as I said, I think, you know, the, the, the economy that's not growing has, has forced them to look very sharply at, at the numbers. This whole saga between Peter Moyo and Old Mutual, <laughs> have you got any comment <laughs> on it? <laughs> okay, it, it, you know, it is incredibly sad uh, that it, it, and it's actually someone else called it yesterday, bizarre. I mean, for both parties, uh, Peter Moyo as well, I mean, I'm not sure what he's trying to achieve uh, because now he's, he, 
his so-called got his job back and he's going back to the office and he said he's going to be there at 8 o'clock this morning. What do you do? I mean, the breach of, of trust is there, a breach of confidence. Uh, surely you're not going to sit in on meetings. Uh, what are they going to do? They're going to give an office somewhere on the fifth floor there at Findance where you sit away from everybody else. <laughs> uh, it, it's just very sad. Also from the board, I don't know how the board handled it, uh, you know, how he was appointed, why he was appointed, you know, uh, yeah, it's, and it, um, it's a mess. It's, and it, in terms of the board and the management team are taking the eye off the ball, and that's, that's a risk now for Old Mutual. Also on Rational Radio was the subject of investments in overseas properties. In the past 15 years, South Africans have started diversifying their property portfolios and residential overseas property have become more attractive. There's also the lure of the golden visa that is attached to some of these investments. Johnny Robbie from Alex Living explained why his company that has developed Century City in Cape Town, decided to look in Portugal for investment opportunities. All our projects in South Africa is, uh, we call it new urbanism, which is a, uh, a combination of work, live and play. So you, you're bringing together all those uses. And, and I think that to a large extent um, is, is what we are doing in, in, in Portugal, in Lisbon. Um, so we do have, this particular building is 151 apartments and uh, 2,000 square meters of retail. So you have your coffee shops, your localized retail at the bottom, and then the apartments climb up. And, and within the apartments are the spas, the gyms, the uh, swimming pools. So um, we are also, which 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 really what interested me dramatically about Lisbon was, was the position of the site. It's in an absolutely prime, prime spot in Lisbon, uh, in a suburb, uh, a CBD district called Amoreas, um, which sits right on all the transportation routes and um, very accessible, and it's a prime site. And, and that's really uh, what got us so excited. Uh, and as the time has gone by, um, you know, we've got more and more optimistic about uh, Lisbon and certainly about Portugal. We looked at this um, development, not from a golden visa perspective. We said we're now developing in Lisbon. We are uh, looking at upon from the traditional property uh, uh, issues of where it is and, and what we can sell for, etc., etc. But together with that, yes, there are opportunities in terms of the Golden Visa Program, which is a Portuguese program for residency, a, e, a Portuguese passport, EU, as they call it, where um, there is an investment of 500,000 euros, and um, that kickstarts a pro- five-year process to uh, qualify for for your Portuguese passport. Um, and uh, but that wasn't the, the the main reason why we went to Portugal to develop property. We we looked at it as a development in Lisbon that can offer value, position, and offer something that we knew we could sell globally. And that's, in fact, what we've done. We've catered for, uh, for buyers right across, uh, across many countries, including South Africa, who saw it um, because of our brands here yeah, and, 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 and people who know us, um, who felt comfortable. And we also saw that not only just buying an apartment, but there was a guarantee of return for the first two years. And knowing that we have been around for a long time, 40 years plus minus, and we were, we would be able 
to deliver it. We, you know, a lot of the properties that come, uh, that are offered are offered through the estate agencies. Um, and, uh, and that's a big difference to somebody like ourselves who, who going out there and doing the work, uh, with very, a, a strong combination of partners. Um, and, and that's really what drove us. When we spoke in April, you were about to have a roadshow talking to people in Johannesburg and in Cape Town. Have people, have South Africans come to the party? Have they, have they been investing in, in uh, this project? The response was enormous. And we have sold uh, to a large amount of South Africans. Together, obviously, as I say, I would say, if you ask me, of the 120 sales of uh, which have been concluded out of the 150 that are available, I would say you're probably looking at 50% South African and, and 50% from around the world, uh, specifically the French um, and, and uh, the um, English uh, are, are big markets, but most importantly, the Brazilians, because of the connection of the Portuguese between Brazil and Portugal, are substantial markets for us to, to go into, and we've had a, a, a real response from uh, from those countries, uh, and then dotted around, you know, the Middle East, um, uh, lots of inquiries coming and of people that want to invest in Portugal. Portugal um, is a is a good story, you know. They have been remarkable since 2012, 2011, 2012, in in how they built up uh, the the economy, uh, stable. Uh, they put an enormous amount of money into infrastructure. Their road networks are world first world world class. And it's a beautiful spot. Uh, and um, we, that, that is all I think that's driven. I don't think we had to uh, tell South Africans or, or, or wherever you came from around the globe about Portugal. Portugal sells itself. Um, you only got to look at the tourism and, and what's going on and the amount of people that are pouring in there. Um, so that's really uh, was the kind of response we, we we have, and we're ongoing now that we're starting to build uh, shortly, um, and uh, we'll be up and running uh, in the ground in the next two three weeks uh, with the basements, and um, and then of course to end of two twenty one, last bit of two twenty one will be complete, and now we're looking at further opportunity to expand our footprint uh, in, in in Portugal. And from property to the mining of minor metals, which are in demand because of the greater demand for electric vehicles. With the problem with ESCOM, South Africans may find it hard to imagine it taking off here. I know we have the image of zooming along the highway and then suddenly you have to recharge your car. There's no way to do it. Or there's load shedding and there's no power available. But worldwide, the popularity of electric vehicles have been expanding rapidly. Gavin Montgomery from Wood Mackenzie, a natural resources consulting firm in London, has researched global battery raw materials, and he says the world would need a lot more of the minor metals such as lithium, cobalt and nickel. It could also mean that platinum could be in danger. Really, the electrification of transportation is is, is causing a, a fundamental change in the metals and mining sector because the, essentially the batteries for these uh, electric vehicles, they're, they use a variety of what we previously called minor metals. Um, and, you know, as electrification picks up, we're going to need a, a lot more of these metals. How do you see the electric vehicles taking over from, uh, or its, its share, the share of electric vehicles uh, as we go forward? 
Sure. So our expectation within Wood Mackenzie is that uh, electric vehicles um, with a plug, so that's our battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids, they will account um, rise to account for 7% of uh, passenger car sales by 2025, and that will rise further to about 13% by 2030. We think it will be a gradual process. Um, there's a lot of challenges, obviously, to electrification. Um, there's still the issue of range anxiety. The charging infrastructure is not there. But certainly, uh, electric vehicles will become, a, you know, a, a definitely a more important issue um, over the next decade or so. So, of the raw material inputs, who are the winners and who are the losers by this trend? Yeah, well. I think they're, they're, they're all winners, really. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of metals that can be used in these vehicles, but the, the key ones really, uh, unsurprisingly, lithium in a lithium-ion battery is used in these vehicles. But also uh, nickel and cobalt are both extensively used um, because really they, they're used in, the, in the, the higher power batteries, which um, electric vehicles require. What about platinum? That's a big story in South Africa with the uh, auto catalysts being used in mm-hmm. petrol engines. And if petrol engines are, are there going to be a lot fewer of them, does that mean that platinum is, is under threat? Yeah, it's, it's probably not so good for platinum. Um, again, there's, there's, there's different schools out there in terms of penetration rates, but um, I mean, certainly in combustion engine vehicles of a sort will be around for a long time to come. So uh, that's obviously positive for platinum. And again, a lot of the other technologies um, being proposed include obviously hybrid vehicles and um, uh, essentially just different ways of raising the fuel efficiency. So we wouldn't say it's it's the end of the road for platinum, but certainly the, the in terms of electric vehicles, lithium, nickel and cobalt will, will de- dominate. And finally, there's a public-private initiative by Toyota CEO Johan van Seyl to bring government and the business sector closer together. It follows an invitation by President Ramaphosa for inputs in his first SONA address. Apart from Rolf Meyer, Ramaphosa's former negotiating partner, Nick Benedal, the founding director of the Gordon Institute of Business Science at Tuckies, is also involved. He told business that sectoral inhibitors for business and investment have been identified jointly. So we've had a number of dialogues uh, with governments that are industry specific. Uh, we sometimes all meet together, but often, often they are bilateral meetings where the sector is trying to identify some of the hurdles. And in the re- most recent sign, the president referred to some 12, if I remember correctly, projects that we put to him on paper. Uh, there's a huge amount of investment, as we all know, uh, companies are sitting on their cash and there's a huge amount of investment potential. So although we haven't really got to the takeoff point yet, uh, there have been very, very constructive discussions. So we've had a very good response from the private sector as well and the industry associations. In a way, I think it's partly got the momentum it has, which we need to maintain, because we've not gone into the normal chambers and structures. It's been, we've been able to have very frank discussions at DG level uh, or DDG level, director, deputy director level, about very specific things. So kind of pulling in the, in the, in the same direction, probably for the first time in some while. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the, the response we had, I think often 
very frustrated DGs who are really trying to get things done is that this is a fresh approach and it was a face-to-face engagement. Now, very often what happens in chambers of business, there's a hierarchy and they do have summits and talk, but they tend to be quite general. These are quite particular, very often quite particular areas. Here's a problem at the port. Here's a problem uh, around tourism, as we all know, around the visas, which we've not made enough progress on. But they were quite specific, sexual specific uh, uh, inhibitors that we identified jointly. Nick, sometimes when you just sit across the table from somebody that you haven't engaged with before and you have a common interest, magic happens. Are you seeing yes. any magic going on here? Is there, is, is, are, well, are, are, any, are, are scales falling from certain eyes? I, I think both sides realize that there's such a critically important, this is such a critically important moment. We are suffering from no growth. And in a fragile new democracy like ours, you know, if we don't generate growth, we really are going to get into very serious problems. And growth, of course, mainly comes from fresh investment, especially the restructuring of our economy, which is so desperately needed, both in terms of transformation, but also in terms of the new economy. And so there is an appetite amongst people to say, let's start again. You know, we had years of difficult engagement. So many CEOs have said to me, it's been impossible to get hold of a minister for years and years on a particular issue they face. And, of course, it's not all one-way traffic. We had to make sure that our bona fides were good and that we weren't coming just to plonk uh, projects on the table that weren't going to make a difference to employment. They had to be spatially useful also uh, because our economy is so skewed in the major cities and so on and so on. So I think there's been a, a reasonable meeting of minds, but it's still very early days. You know, what's astonishing is how complex some of these things are. They're simple for, to identify. But very often the problem is in multiple ministries or at multiple levels, national, provincial and local. And so some of these are quite complicated. How long does it take when you make a decision at that level? So now we're talking presidential level. How long does it take for that to hit where where the tackle hits the top? That's a a very interesting question. You know, I, I remember when I was a youngster looking at thinking about how powerful chief executives must be. They must be like generals where they issue an order and immediately it gets followed. And I discovered it's not quite so in companies, it's less so in government. Because government is essentially very bureaucratic in nature. It's astonishingly rules-driven. The PFMA and other requirements make it very difficult. And I think there's been a bit of, um, let me say, hesitancy to make dramatic decisions. If I study the Asian economies, we're just doing some research on the entrepreneurial states in Asia, Government really led the growth of those economies. We haven't seen big, decisive projects. If you go back to the 1950s, when the National Party uh, developed its industrial park system of Thunder Bale and so on, these were big, bold decisions where the Eskims and Iskors and so on were enabled to become major state-owned enterprises made a difference. We live in a different kind of economy now, so it may not be about those kinds of investments, but it certainly is about building capacity and making sure that the systems that get in the way of us doing business are, are where they're reasonable to be dealt with, can be dealt with. And that was Nutshell, a wrap of the week's main interviews on Biz News. You can listen to the full interviews on our website. I hope you will join me again next week.